We knew that Pet Sounds was a very special record. And to us, it was more than a record. It was a new place. It was, you know, popular music coming to a new level. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Sail On Podcast. This is Wyatt in Nashville, and I'm joined, as always, by my homie, Jason Brewer. Howdy, buds and budettes. We're back with part two of our Pet Sounds discussion, and we got a lot to talk about today. We've been moving and grooving, as always, with our Beach Boys tribute known as, believe it or not, Sail On. Boom. And we played a bunch of gigs this past couple weeks. We went up to Wisconsin and Iowa and Ohio, and we saw some of you guys. So that was really awesome. Thank you for coming to say hey. Say uh, shout out to Chris, Nate, Charles, Richard, and Sue. Thank you guys very much for coming out. It was fun to meet you and talk with you a little bit. Um, we played a really awesome show up in Amish country in Ohio. That was pretty unique. It was like an old Amish community that had like a lot of new touristy stuff. They had a huge theater where they had tribute bands and um, singers and theater shows and all types of stuff. And it was unexpectedly cool, but it's always an adventure. We've got a few shows coming up next week. If you guys are in the area and want to come say hello, Jason, what are we doing? We have three really great shows coming up. We're playing on April 26th in Hartford, Connecticut, April 27th in Norwood, Massachusetts, and April 28th in Annapolis, Maryland. Go check out sailonsounds.com. Get some info. Be there. Live it. Do it. Be it. Yeah, what he said. We have a lot of shows this year, so check out our dates. If you're in the area, let us know. Come say hello. If we're around beforehand, we can... Maybe grab an adult beverage with you, watch some sports ball or something. But yeah, we're doing it. We're really doing it. In a van. Um, We're doing it in a van, believe it or not. That sounds weird. All right, let's move on. Speaking of uh, our upcoming show in Norwood, I got a message from a listener. His name is Jim Hinsa. And he says, Hi, Wyatt. My name is Jim Hensa. Enjoy the podcast. A big fan of the Explorers Club as well. Me and two buddies are going to be at your Annapolis, Maryland show in a few weeks. I'll buy you a drink, but only if I get a shout out for my thread titled Musing About Party. My very first sentence was, after listening to a Sail On podcast, I got to thinking about the party album. You can read the rest at your leisure. It sparked a decent conversation. See you in Jay soon. So he is referring to the Endless Harmony message board. And I do appreciate the shout out there, Jim. And I look forward to that uh, drink that you're going to buy me. Um, And uh, (laughs) if you guys are uh, unaware, there are a few Beach Boys forums, most notably the smileysmile.net message board. But now there's a newer one. It's called Endless Harmony. I don't know that one. So check that out. Yeah, so... 
there was some drama involved and the Pet Sounds forum closed down and this kind of emerged in its place. Tell you, internet drama, that's the problem of the world, buddy. I mean, Beach Boys drama is always prevalent. It's crazy. But um, we try and stay above all of that and just, you know, we like I said before, we lurk on those places, but we don't really get into the heated discussions, as it were. Check out those message boards because they are pretty entertaining and there's a lot of info on there. And um, sometimes people ask me where I get all the info for these episodes. Well, a lot of different places. It's a lot of uh, hodgepodge. If you will, I go between a lot of books and then also the internet is great, obviously, but also just uh, things that I've kind of picked up over the years and kind of collected memories. You know, I mean, everything and, and anything, which is why I'm sure I mess up a lot. So if there's plenty of errors in this episode or any episode, please forgive me. I'm just relaying information as I remember it or as I read it. So... Take it with a grain of salt, as you do anything Beach Boys related, because the only people that really know are the ones that were there. They're probably not talking. Which is fine. It's their personal life. That being said, um, if you guys like all the wonderful things that we do here at Ceylon, the Beach Boys podcast, you can check out our Patreon page for some extra episodes. We do a radio show every month. We just did a really fun one. Some of you maybe have heard the preview that I put up, but it was all about the Beach Boys singing about food and sometimes beverages, something that we love a lot. And obviously the Beach Boys did too. So check that out. I want to give a shout out to some of our patrons Carly O'Malley, Grady Jones, Jason Hines, Bob Penn, Matthew Corcoran, Henrik Pallen, Robert Bluey. Thank you guys very much for your support. We are only 10 patrons away from 50. And Jason, do you know what that means when we reach 50? I do not. Please let me know. (laughs) It means we're going to do a bonus episode every month. So whether that's an interview or just us talking about how great somewhere near Japan is, it's just going to be something fun for you guys. And I'm going to we'll do take... I'm going to do a podcast on the perils of French fries. Okay, there's that too. Um, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> we are going to do something. I'll tell you that and it's going to be fun. It's going to be Beach Boys related. So I mean, that's all I can tell you. The rest is is up in the air, but we'll take suggestions off the air if you want. Um, but I've got a few interviews lined up that we will do just for those uh, episodes, and it should be a lot of fun. So come on over to patreon.com slash on and check out what we got. Uh, we got a little bit of Beach Boys news. So we've known for a while that there is a new documentary in the works about Brian Wilson and his recent touring. And, and we don't really know a whole lot about it, but recently there was a poster that was released. And the title of the documentary is Long Promised Road. And a lot of Beach Boys fans jumped up out of their seats and said, that's a Carl Wilson song. What are you thinking? And I, you know, obviously they have a reason for it. And there is a rumor that Brian re-recorded Long Promised Road. 
And, I mean, there's probably a few more titles that would have been more appropriate that Brian came up with, but, you know. Long Promised Robe. Long Promised Robe, that's right. That is our new tribute band that just focuses on the music from 1973 to 1978 of the Beach Boys. Correct. (laughs) It's just like, it's just six guys in robes with beards and long hair (laughs) just playing synthesizers. Let me tell you, I want to be in that band. I mean, be careful what you wish for. I'm in. in. Um, What do you think about that, Jason? Uh, I mean, it's a it's a silly title. They could have got done a lot better than that. Um, but I can see what they're trying to do. And if you're tying it in with him re-recording that song, great. Then that means people who have never heard it before, your casual Beach Boys fans that might watch the thing will hear that song. And hopefully in the movie they break down, you know, why he chose to cover that. And I know he's been playing it at his shows. Um, so there is that. Yeah, I'm sure there's a great reason for it. And it is a great song i mean no doubts there and maybe a sweet tribute to his brother but i don't feel like the movie is going to be about the beach boys i think it's going to be about brian but yeah um we're looking forward to it anyway um i mean hopefully it's wonderful and hopefully it covers some topics that haven't been covered before um i know there's a lot of talk about the appropriateness of Brian still being on the road and the state of his health and all that. Um, so maybe we'll get to see a little bit more into his life on the road. Yeah, it'd be great to get a little more all, no holds barred, you know? Yeah, you can only hope, man. Um, I still kind of hold out for, you know, Brian being able to express himself with no filter one day again, hopefully before it's too late. Um, whether that be in music or just telling his story or whatever. I think there was a little bit of that in his book, I Am Brian Wilson, and then also like on his, you know, in his solo career. But I feel like the last time he was totally honest and totally um, unfiltered was on uh, the Beach Boys Love You and maybe Adult Child to a lesser extent. But Probably so. Um, also, I think that interview he did about his celibacy really kind of brought that out, his honesty. Oh Lord, we're gonna save that for <laughs> we're gonna save that for down the road. Man, this show is gonna be so interesting when we get to the '70s Beach Boys. My goodness. Well, finally, we'll be into the good records. There it is. <laughs> I'm just speaking I'm just I'm just of... asking for hate mail on this episode. So come on, guys, bring it. All right. Well, speaking of good records, uh, last time we talked about Sloop John B. And um, one of our uh, listeners and friends, Sean Courtney, also has a podcast that is um, called Autobiography of a Schnook. And he occasionally talks about the Beach Boys. And this past episode that he did, he talked about Sloop John B. and its relationship to cotton fields. Um, and dare I say it, he brings up a very very interesting and plausible Beach Boys conspiracy. Hmm. So I'm not going to give it away because I want you guys to listen to it. Um, I'm going to put a link in the show notes, but it's really interesting. It's really, really interesting. Believe me. Check it out.
All right, we're going to get into some emails today. First off, we've got an interesting duo. Father and son both wrote in. I don't know if they wrote in, you know, at the same time or if they just kind of unknowingly both wrote me. But um, it's really sweet, and I wanted to read both of them. First one is from the father, Brian Sorber. Greetings, Wyatt and Jason. My son and I saw Ceylon in Selma, North Carolina at the Rudy Theater and really appreciated your commitment to such a faithful and competent rendering of the Beach Boys music. Awesome. I have been a fan of the Beach Boys since I heard 409 and Surf and Safari when they were first released. Yes, I am an old guy, 71. I also have seen various versions of the band many times over the years. Just a comment regarding the inclusion of Let's Go Trippin' and Miserloo on the Surf and USA album. I can understand why a current analysis might consider this to be mere trivial filler. However, this album likely served as an introductory 101 to an audience which had not previously had much exposure to the surf and music culture. As a result, it seems logical that such an effort would include a couple established instrumental surf and cuts. In addition, back in the late 50s, early 60s, there were more fans of instrumental music than there are today and having an album containing some instrumental cuts may have added to its appeal and marketability. I love your podcasts and music. Keep it up. Thank you for indulging a senior fan. Brian Sorber, Wake Forest, North Carolina. Brian, thanks for the great email. I think that's a topic we've talked about. Actually, after we did those episodes, we definitely discussed, well, this could have been really a big gateway for a lot of people into surf culture and music, and Capital probably knew that going in and probably encouraged that, I would say. So, yeah. And thanks for coming to see us. Glad you enjoyed the show and what we do with that music. We're really proud of how we do it. Indeed. And um, just to add to what Jason said, I really have gotten a lot of emails and a lot of people that have come up to me um, that have heard our episodes on the early Beach Boys records and have defended the instrumentals. And I totally get it. And I never wanted to say like they're bad or that uh it's just uh they're not for me i think and i like some of them a lot and we're going to talk more about that because uh today's episode is very very important as far as the legacy of beach boys instrumentals and we'll get to that in a bit but let's get no boogie woody let's get to adam sorber hey wyatt and jason i accompanied my dad to your recent show out in selma and discovered the podcast shortly thereafter. After binging for the last week or so, I'm one episode away from being caught up. Great content. I really enjoy the history and enthusiasm for the subject matter. I'm not a huge fan of pre-Pet Sounds Beach Boys, but I've always considered Brian a genius. Pet Sounds has always been a top five album, and I find the personal history fascinating. Love and Mercy was absolutely my favorite film of 2015. I'm writing with an anecdote and inquiry. I usually don't go out of my way to attend solo acoustic shows unless the artist is both a talented singer, songwriter, and a great storyteller. Several years back, I had the opportunity to watch Wesley Stace, a.k.a. John Wesley Harding, do an acoustic show with Rick Moody and Joe Pernice, all artists who have dabbled in both music and the written word. It was a laid-back event in a tiny venue in Chapel Hill. Stace and Pernice were sitting at the bar casually chatting when we walked in and consisted of each of the artists both singing songs and reading excerpts from their personal repertoire, doing a few covers and some group performances. 
The highlight was the final performance of the evening, Stace and Moody singing In My Room in German. The juxtaposition of hauntingly beautiful melody and the harsh consonants of the German language was absolutely surreal, and I loved it. So you can imagine my surprise when I recently googled In My Room German and found that the Beach Boys actually recorded a German version for Capital in 1964. I thought Stace and Moody were masters of ironic juxtaposition, but they were just covering an obscure track. From what I can tell, the lyrics were written by a German ex-girlfriend of Mike's. What I can't figure out is why. Was it just a fun experiment, or were German language singles a thing back in the 60s? I always thought that Germany didn't have much interest in Western pop music prior to David Hasselhoff. Any idea how the track came to be? Keep up the great work and hit me up if you're ever in the Raleigh area. Adult beverages are on me. Ceylon, Adam Sorber, Wake Forest, North Carolina. Well, you know, the Beatles did German tracks because they got their big start in Germany, really. And so, yep. I mean, that's probably why the Beach Boys did a German track because the Beatles did it. Yeah, I think also um, that specific track, you know, maybe could have had a more wide appeal to uh, a different audience, maybe the overseas audience in Germany. Um I think, you know, it's not about surfing or cars or anything like specifically American. So I think maybe they were trying to test the waters in a different market. And um, I guess, you know, I don't know whose idea was it to do the German version, but I think that's the motivation for it. And um, yeah, I think, you know, Mike having uh, an ex-girlfriend that spoke German was was just kind of the kicker. So that's the best I can come up with. Hopefully that's good enough for you, Adam, because I'm really looking forward to that adult beverage. And um, I really appreciate both of you guys writing and sorry it took us so long to get to it. We are so happy that so many people are writing us. Um, And uh, we will see you again soon. We got some shows over in that neck of the woods later this year. So we'll get together, man. Thank you very much again, both of you guys. Thanks. All right. So last week we were talking about Sloop John B. And what an epic tale it is. And the, the song that took, you know, six months to record. But we're moving on with our journey through Pet Sounds. And we're actually going to start off today talking about a track that didn't make the record. A track that Brian Wilson brought into the studio on November 1st, 1965. And at the time, he was just fooling around. He said he was just messing around with the musicians. He took an arrangement out of his briefcase, and they did it in 20 minutes. There was nothing to it, he said. The title was scribbled on the tape box, and it was called Trombone Dixie. Okay, let's run this number down. Okay, no. Here we go. This is uh, uh, <clears throat> take one, all right? Let's really think it over now. Just really play as well as you can. So this track was done in about 11 takes. You can hear at the beginning, Brian telling them, let's play it just as well as you can. And uh, right off the bat, you get the same vibe as the little girl I once knew with that intro. Thank you. 
Jerry. <laughs> Jerry was on a dead mic. Here we go. One more. That was going to... Take two. It's okay, Take two, please. No. So they're kind of moving their way through the tracking. Um, Brian's, you know, adjusting the mix. And back then, the way you adjusted the mix was you would tell somebody to either play louder or move forward or backward in their seat closer to the microphones. Really interesting. And, and it's really uh, intriguing to hear as, as I am a mix engineer now where there's just an endless palette of colors you can use and, and plugins and outboard gear and back then it was really more about just capturing a performance and um brian was a master of that um and you really had to mix on the fly and the arrangement was just the beginning On the fourth take, Brian asks for more Santa Claus in the intro, and of course he's talking about the sleigh bells. I thought that was awesome that he called it more Santa Claus. <laughs> uh, and then on take six, he's uh, adjusting the percussion, making things a little bit clearer. By, by take seven, you've got almost a full take. Uh, the song moves into a key change, and the guitars get off a little bit on the cording. By take eight, Brian's messing with the EQ of the guitars. Brian, get closer to that timpani's mic. Want to stand up for it? Take a little high off, huh? When you get to take 11, that's basically what they called the master track.
And I think this song was intended to be an instrumental. Yeah. And I don't think Brian really, you know, thought too highly of it. But it turns out that they came back to the track many years later and uh, it ended up being a song called Had to Phone Ya. You can definitely hear like a lot of the passages and the chord changes, you know, obviously the melodies. I think I think specifically the, the Honeys or the Spring version of Had to Phone Ya yeah. is really similar. You know, Brian never intended anyone to hear this track. It didn't come out until 1990 on the CD of Pet Sounds as a bonus track. So, yeah, um, really interesting. Um, I really enjoy it. I mean, it sounds awesome. I mean, it's it's a uh, it's a really cool baseline. Like, you know, we we've been talking about how Brian was experimenting with with baseline kind of melodies and the bass kind of being in a different place than the rest of the band, the rest of the chordal instruments. And I think this one is a great example of that. The bass is kind of meandering. It's almost like an, a, a Paul McCartney bass line at times. And, um, you know, of course, you've got the wrecking crew on this, um, the usual cast of characters. Um, the horns sound amazing. I mean, like we were talking about, the, the percussion is, is great. There's like a Latin feel to it, um, the vibraphone. Uh, and then, you know, of course, uh, Hal Blaine just slaying it on the drums uh, it's a really cool vibe and uh, something that he would definitely experiment with more down the line what do you think about this track I've always really liked it you know it was never a favorite of mine um, but I like how experimental it is for for Brian Wilson music um, you know it, it's a lot more loud horns than he normally arranges you know I guess that was kind of the point of doing it as Trumbo and Dixie but because, you know, I guess the thing I kept thinking about is I believe on our last couple episodes, we talked about some of those unique instrumental sessions he did around this time where he was it's almost like he was just experimenting to try to find new territory. And so I kind of see that with this track. And, and I think one of the next tracks we're going to talk about is going to touch on. Brian actually incorporating some more of the, you know, exotica and things of that nature influence into his music and almost more of an adult vibe as opposed to being kids music. So uh, with Trombone Dixie, I think that it's a good precursor to the advancements he'd make. I, I kind of feel it feels unfinished to me if you want to know my the truth of what I think about it feels like it's still kind of missing something and that's why you didn't really hear about it until later it does still feel like a backing track you know even though the trombones kind of carry the melody um i do wonder what his intention was um and you obviously can can listen to hadaphonia and hear you know this song you know done with voices and a melody and lyrics and i love hadaphonia and we'll talk about that you know at a later date but um it's really cool hearing kind of the the seminal you know recording sessions 
for that idea. And it's pretty amazing that they really did nail this in about 20 minutes. So, um, and you can hear Brian on one of the takes say, okay, we only got a minute or two left. Let's just nail this right now. Um, so he was just kind of using any chance he could to just experiment with things. And this was kind of a throwaway track for him, but it is really fun and I do enjoy it. Um, I don't think it would have fit on pet sounds with already there being two instrumentals, but, um, it is such a cool piece of the puzzle, uh, in the grand scheme of things. And if I had to rate it, I'd give it a seven out of 10. Um, I'd probably, uh, you know, withhold my full rating for had to phone you. But like I said, we'll get to that. Yeah. I'm going to say, uh, six out of 10 only because it just feels unfinished. Like I was saying. Yeah, it's almost not fair to 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 rank this, you know. But yeah, I kind of I kind of feel like it's a it's in the nether world. It's a NA out of ten. NA out of ten, <laughs> best. Um, but yeah, I give it uh, seven trombones out of ten. <laughs> um, All right, perfect. <laughs> uh, it is a really great sounding track, and you can definitely, uh, you know take away from it brian's uh advancements in the studio and this was just another exercise as it were to him developing himself as a pro- as a producer and as an arranger uh, let us know what you guys think about that it's uh it's a really interesting track and i don't think it gets talked about very often i, I read a lot of beach boys books and it kind of gets skipped over but just a couple weeks later as we mentioned before Uh, The Beach Boys were on tour, and Brian brought in another arrangement for a song that he intended to be as a theme of a James Bond film. He had recently he had recently seen Thunderball, and uh, he loved uh, the soundtrack for that, the score, and he loved composers like Henry Mancini um, and uh, like the Phil Spector style productions, but like you know, kind of the the cinematic orchestra sounds. And uh, I always really loved that vibe and that, you know, like you were saying, that kind of exotica, but also just kind of like that 60s spy movie soundtrack vibe. And uh, the song was originally going to be called Run, James, Run, because there you go. It's a James Bond song. Um, And uh, we know it today as Pet Sounds. This would be take one, huh? Everybody ready on the same position we were? All right, let's count it like this. One, two, one, two. No, you count it out there, huh? Somebody count it out there. So they they did this track really quickly. They did it in just a few takes and uh, started off really slow. And Brian quickly realized that that was not going to work. So he sped it up. Um, you've got some amazing percussion on this track. Um not Hal Blaine in this case. It's actually uh, Richie Frost hmm. playing drums as well as uh, some Coca-Cola cans. And it's not the last time you're going to hear about Coca-Cola today, believe it or not. Um, but yeah, and then uh, they basically nailed it in three takes, which is amazing.
came back the next day to do the overdubs, which were um, Billy Strange on lead guitar, um, which really makes the song. And uh, it's an amazing track, and I know uh, Jason probably has more to say about it than I do, because we actually play this track in our set, and Jason plays the lead guitar. And it's a really interesting guitar part. It's not just really the melody itself, but it's the style in which it's played, and it's some of the like oh, yeah. improv stuff that really blows my mind on it. If you listen to the first guitar take, there's some crazy improv going on at the end where he's just playing wacky stuff. It's a pretty experimental guitar piece, to be honest with you. Like, I had to learn it for our show, and I play a real truncated, basic version of it, um, you know, because what's on the record, the way he plays, he kind of even bends almost into every note. Every note is like, it's like it's a forced thing. And it almost feels like, you know, and this is something I brought up earlier, this really reeks, in a good way, reeks of... uh a lot of exotica and bossa nova and weird stuff like that. And James Bond guitar, because if you listen to like, I watched a James Bond movie last night, oddly a sixties one. Um, and you know, listening to the theme coming into that, the guitar is really bent into the notes that are being played. So things are kind of just, that's how the guitar style that they were going for. So he probably told uh, Billy strange to say, you know, he probably told him, okay, this is supposed to be like James Bond-style guitar. And so that's kind of what he went for. But if you listen, it's got all those, like like you're talking about, almost like he's like smacking the strings and, and doing a bunch of weird stuff to make the amp and the guitar almost be its own random noise generation thing, you know? Like it's not, it's not just uh, playing notes on a page. It's really putting some personality into the whole take. So... You know, this this tune really doesn't get enough credibility for, hey, this is a really incredible, unique guitar piece, because it really is. It's um, got some crazy vibratoed out, le- almost Leslie sounding guitar that doesn't really sound like much else from the era up to that point. The improvisational style doesn't sound like any of the players from the era. I mean, it's just a kind of a weird space 
zone guitar piece. So, um, I mean, I'm going to go ahead and rank this as like, I mean, it's eight out of 10. It's a killer. Man, what an awesome guitar piece. I agree. I really love it. Um, the backing track to the guitar is also phenomenal. Oh, yeah. Um, it's huge. It's huge. You obviously got a really cool drum and percussion part going um, and lots of Latin feels there, but I love the bass playing by Carol Kay and Lionel Ritz, of course. You know, I mean, just the, the saxophone sound incredible. And, you know, you've got Brian Wilson playing piano on this track, which is awesome something that he didn't do as much in this era um and uh i give it a nine out of ten it's a, it's amazing i love this track um and I, I i love that it's called pet sounds because it's there's no vocals on it and there's a lot of brian's pet sounds on this song if you will you know his his favorite sounds um and his favorite players so i think it's really amazing i think it's it's really unique for this band um and for a pop group and um i hear a lot also of martin denny and les baxter on this um especially the big hit quiet village (laughs) 
And I know Brian denies it. They, somebody asked Brian about it, and he said he never listened to it before. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, Brian also said his favorite movie is Norbit, so you can't always believe him. But um, I think it's obvious that he was inspired by at least that genre. Um, but I, I really love it, man. I think it's one of the more fun songs to play live, and I loved hearing Brian's band play it. It was one of the highlights of both when I saw them play uh, Pet Sounds back in uh, the early 2000s, and then also just a couple years ago. Um, I mean, it's just such a great live song. I mean, the drums are just wailing. The guitar sounds amazing. Um, you know, of course, you got Nicky Wonder playing it now, who, who nails it, does a great job. Um, and uh, Darian on the vibraphone. Just a little shout out to those guys for just crushing it day in, day out. Um, and yeah, what else is there to say, man? Pet sounds jam it. Yeah. It's hard for me to go nine out of 10 because of the weight of all these other tunes on this record. But I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm the same way, but I was just, I was putting it up against other songs and just thinking, man, like I like this just as much as don't worry, baby. Like it's crazy, but I do like, I like this just as much as when I grew up to be a man or, or I like it just as much as a lot of these songs, a lot of these great Beach Boys songs from the 1960s. Um, and I just, I just uh, have a personal affinity for this track. I think, I, I think it's also just one that um, always stuck with me uh, since I heard this record for the first time. Um, and I can't really explain it. There's a certain uh, nostalgic quality to it for me. Brian actually reused the title Run James Run for a song he released recently on the playback anthology set that he put out. So, I mean, I don't know what that's about. I guess, you know, just kind of a fun way to reuse the title. But uh, this is always Run James Run in my heart. Ah, yeah, I mean, that other song is, it's whatever. It's cool. <laughs> it's wonderful. Come on. Uh I can't even, I don't remember that song at all. It, I listened to it once and I was like, eh, all right. I listened, I listened to it one <laughs> time. Cool. Um, all right. Bring the hate mail. <laughs> So we left off talking about the Beach Boys timeline kind of in late December after recording Sloop John B. And uh, just after Christmas, the boys were back on the road. They played uh, three shows around the New Year's celebration. They were in Oakland on December 30th with the Turtles, Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels, Jackie Lee and the T-Bones. And then they played on December 31st, New Year's Eve, 1966, in uh, Tacoma, Washington. This was a huge show. Um, it was with Gary Lewis and the Playboys, the Yardbirds, the Bo Brummels. Really, really awesome. Um, and then they actually played two days. They played the New Year's Eve show, and then the next day in, in Seattle, the same lineup. I read an interesting story that Bruce Johnston relayed to an interviewer about... Uh, hanging out with the Yardbirds and meeting Jeff Beck and they didn't have their equipment with them so they had to use the Beach Boys equipment and uh, when they were playing they kind of turned around and started like you know pushing the guitars into the amps trying to make feedback and Dennis and Mike not understanding what they were doing like freaked out and like ran up to unplug the guitar amps because they thought they were trying to break their gear (laughs) 
I thought that was amazing. Then also that night, the crowd rushed the stage during the Beach Boys show. They had to stop playing and they, they got out of there really fast because it was getting wild. I would have loved to have seen some of those shows to hear a bunch of my favorite songs, especially a Turtles and Beach Boys in their heyday show. Because, I mean, the Beach Boys are such great singers, but Howard Kalen give give all those guys a run for their money because he's such a good singer. So, um, yeah, man, talk about a night of people getting to hear some amazing vocals. So they got back to California, and on January 3rd, the Beach Boys were presented with three gold records for their LPs that topped the $1 million mark. So my question to you... So what were the three? That's my question to you, Jason. What what do you think those three are? Because I was a little bit surprised. I, I'm gonna, I have a good guess here. Without looking or anything, it's going to be in con- the concert album. I'm going to say Surfing USA, and then I'm also going to say Party. Well, um, oh no, I forgot, the, I forgot the Christmas album. <laughs> you got one out of the three. Okay. But um, it is Surfing USA, Surfer Girl, okay. and Beach Boys Today. Huh. See, I figured those other more novelty generated at records sold more. Well, I think they probably did, but this was just the ones that just in November of 65 passed a million dollars. So it's kind of a trick uh, question. Okay. Yeah, you're but, trying to trick me, man. Come on. Well, I mean. Because all those ones you know, I named charted higher. Yeah. I mean, concert probably sold a million in a month. Yes. Okay. Well, I mean, well whatever. These, these are the ones, ones that I just think it's time. interesting. It's a, I just think it's interesting that it took Surfer Girl almost three years three to years. sell a million dollars, but still cool. Um, so that uh, that leads us into the Beach Boys' first tour of Japan. So they left from San Francisco on uh, January 6th, and they spent two weeks in Japan. And they had some great shows, and um, they all really enjoyed their time there. Um, Mike Love said some interesting things about how uh, the only thing that was kind of a little weird for him was the food, because they've served some fish with the head still attached. And he says he doesn't like eating anything that's still looking at him. (laughs) And there's a joke in there somewhere, but I'm going to leave that to you guys. Oh Lord. But, um, there's a awesome, uh, show on YouTube from the January 13th Osaka show. And you can listen to the whole thing. It's awesome. There's audio from it. Yeah. The audio from it. It's great. The band sounds great. They're really rocking and rolling and they do a little medley of some of the older songs. And they also do, they close out the show with Johnny Be Good and it's super rocking. There's also an interview uh, with the Beach Boys from Japan. And it's great to hear Al on there talking about his experiences in Japan and how much fun he had and how respectful everybody was and how he loved the culture and all the sights and everything. Hello, readers of TV Magazine. <laughs> uh, this is Al Jardine of the Beach Boys. And uh, we're very pleased and happy to be here tonight in this uh, new and wonderful country. When they were in Kyoto, they did a photo shoot where they were dressed as uh, samurai. And that photo session uh, would result in photos that were on the back of the Pet Sounds LP. So if you've got your LP, flip it over now and let's check it out because you've got some awesome pictures on there of the Beach Boys wearing samurai gear. And I never, like, you know, when I was younger and looking at those pictures, I was like, that's really strange. Like, what does that have to do with this record? 
Like that makes no sense. And I was like, it just added to the the mythos that is Pet Sounds and kind of like I wonder what um some of you guys that picked up that record initially thought of that. Um so let us know if you bought Pet Sounds back in the day and were confused by the samurai pictures. Um because I was. But makes total sense now that they were just having a good time in Japan and just kind of wanted to commemorate that. So um, while they were in Japan, Carl and Dennis actually phoned Brian regularly to have Brian play them rough mixes of songs that he had been working on in the studio. And I thought that was awesome. Um, Brian was playing them like a rough mix of Sloop John B and stuff like that. And uh, some of the other tracks he was working on, Caroline No. Um, and then this next track we're going to talk about in a bit. But I always love that, and it really shows how how much Carl uh, enjoyed Pet Sounds and these songs, and how much he supported Brian. Um, I know when they first set out to do it, first set out to make this record, before really um, putting down anything, putting down any vocals or anything, mm-hmm. that uh, Brian and Carl said they would get together and pray, um, and they really wanted this record to be a very spiritual one, and they wanted to convey uh, love to everyone. I think we we started to have, you know, prayer sessions to, to pray for, you know, guidance to bring forward, you know, God's will in, in the work. The prayer session took, took direction of uh, uh, Jesus Christ and it went and it got into the area of uh, praying for people, you know, and, and we also prayed for an album. We didn't have a title or nothing, you know, for an album that would be a rival to Rubber Soul. <laughs> so yeah, Brian was uh, in the studio while the Beach Boys were in Japan. And uh, one day he was outside of uh, one of the studio rooms and a sharply dressed man passed by looking for the coffee machine. He recognized Brian and he said, hey, how are you? Brian didn't know who he was, but he said, I've been laying down some tracks, just some demo stuff. The man introduced himself as Tony Asher. 26-year-old jingle writer and a casual Beach Boys fan. He later said he didn't actually own any of the records, but he knew who Brian was. He was a aspiring lyricist and uh, wrote advertisements and jingles and, and copy for companies like Mattel. He actually worked on a lot of Hot Wheels commercials back in the 60s. Hmm. They're the fastest metal cars you've ever seen. Mattel's new Hot Wheels. Collect them by themselves or get them in wild new action sets like the drag race action set, the stunt action set, the hot curves race action set. Get Mattel's new Hot Wheels, the fastest metal cars you've ever seen. Uh, Brian called Tony a few weeks later. Because he got his number from their mutual friend, Lauren Schwartz, who oh, we've perfect. mentioned before. <laughs> they actually went to college together. Crazy. Kind of a coincidence, yeah. Uh, he asked him if he was interested in getting together and working on some songs. And it's kind of crazy because he just met this guy, but Brian had a good feeling about him. He said he just kind of hit it off with him and got some good vibes from him. And uh, he explained that he needed help with lyrics. So... He said, yeah, sure, let's do it. I think it's fair to say that when Brian and I started working on this, not only were we similar ages, but we were, we both had similar feelings about, you know, sort of love and dating and women and 
having our hearts broken and you know all that sort of stuff. We really connected on that level, which was great because that's what really produced the the thematic material, the the ideas, you know, the song ideas. And I do think both of us had you know, sort of an elevated view of love, you know. In other words, we didn't think of, these were not necessarily just lustful yearnings, you know. We really thought that, that love made the world go around and, and that we, we were, it was not, it was no chore for us to write. Mike Love wrote in his book, on his first day, he arrived at Brian's house in the morning and had to wait two hours before Brian woke up and came downstairs. This happened a few times before Tony realized he was no longer in corporate America. On most days, according to Tony, he and Brian would spend an hour or so talking, usually about girls past and present. Tony was still a bachelor. Brian was disarmingly honest, one time telling Tony that he had just returned from his in-law's house where he found Marilyn's sister, Diane, so appealing. <laughs> that triggered broader discussions about their complex feelings toward women and relationships, about seeking love, finding love, falling out of love, and having your heart broken. They smoked weed and once ate hash brownies and developed a comfortable rapport. Uh, Tony Asher said about Brian, the single most irresponsible person I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Uh, he, re he remembered that there were uncashed royalty checks of up to $100,000 scattered around Wilson's house. He later called Brian a genius musician, but an amateur human being. He later said he didn't mean that in the way it came out, explaining that we all have areas of things we're good at and things we're not so good at, but his is so zeroed in on music. Hmm. That's kind of an interesting quote. I mean, you can definitely see the writing on the wall if that was the case, because, you know, Brian was, uh, you know, a, a creature of, of passion and, and great genius, but, you know, he also kind of let other things slip by him. Um, his uh his duties as a husband or as as the man of the house you know things like that i think he was really focused in on on making this album i think you can kind of see the beginnings of a lot of the things that we know so well about brian uh but i think their relationship was a really good one and i think they worked really well together um tony introduced brian to an album called how to speak hip boom which was a language instruction album and I guess there were uh, other ones that were a little bit more serious, you know, and this was kind of a the comedy, this album. Was kind of a, a comedy version of that. And uh, he played it for Brian and it destroyed him. He said that Brian picked up a couple of references. One of them was this hip character that said, if everyone were laid back and cool, then we'd have world peace. So Brian started just saying that all the time. Hey, would somebody get me a candy bar? We'll have world peace. <laughs> just relax. Me and this other cat are going to straighten you guys out. And then we'll get you know world peace. You ever hear that album called How to Speak Hip? Has anybody ever heard it? Oh, it's funny. It's How to Speak Hip by Del Close and John Brennan. It was cut in 59. It's a very funny album. Uh, so that brings us up to this next song, which Brian called Let's Go Away for a While and Then We'll Have World Peace. Take that. Uh, take one, please.
No drums. No drums here. Space pedal till we get to that. Perfect. Originally, this also had a couple other titles. So, um, The Old Man and the Baby was another title that he had for this. It was really interesting. Hmm. I don't know what that's about. Um, but it ended up being just called Let's Go Away for a While. And this is the third instrumental we're going to talk about today and the second one that made the album. Again, we've got the Wrecking Crew, and right off the bat, you can hear Brian telling Hal, no drums, at the beginning of the song, because uh, Hal's kind of starting into a groove, and Brian knows that all he wants is the kick pedal. So, um, really interesting. This song is kind of uh, done in movements, and uh, it's a great little segue song going into Sloop John B, kind of a prelude, if you will. And this song really does feel like uh, you're going somewhere exotic and romantic and, you know, somewhere new and exciting. And uh, it's really interesting as far as like the composition. It's way different than anything else that he had written up to this point. But again, you see uh, his experimentation with the bass writing. So the bass notes just kind of meandering underneath the chords, um, sometimes doing a pedal note, which is just a note that stays the same over several other chords that move. Um, so I think that's, to me, the highlight of this song and the way that the song progresses. Um, I mean, obviously some great strings were overdubbed on this. They did it in 18 takes. Um, the strings and flutes were done the next day. So doing an instrumental, you had more tracks to play with. You didn't have to worry about saving tracks for the vocals. So... Um, they didn't have to bounce down as many times. So you've got a lot more clarity here. Um, and I especially like the second movement of the song, I guess you could call it, um, where it kind of slows down. You've got the wood blocks. Oh, yeah. Um, and the, the strings, vibraphone. The strings when they come in on that part. Too. Oh, man. It's, ama it's amazing. Uh, yeah, I mean, just the overall sound of this, you've got uh, Barney Kessel's acoustic guitar is just like... Yeah, I had to. the coolest sounding acoustic ever um, and then you yeah, got it's real dry you've got Al Casey playing 12 string guitar playing it with a coke bottle so mm -hmm. two songs on Pet Sounds played with two different coke products I thought that was pretty awesome <laughs> it's, a it's a tough song I remember we had when yeah, we played this record um, I had to learn the changes and it's not a picnic it's a great arrangement I mean obviously the, the violins are kind of a highlight but I mean I think you know just the kind of the pulsing piano obviously the uh the saxophones the trumpets and uh the timpani that comes in kind of to usher in you know either a key change or the the return to the verse as it were um i think is awesome and just used so well and then kind of the way the song kind of dissipates at the end um with the little slide guitar lines uh, it's 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 really unique and it's it's really indicative of Brian's experimentation at the time, not only with music but with drugs, I think. And I don't think they ever did any vocals for this, but I think that he talked about originally how he wanted to do vocals on it, but he thought it worked better as an instrumental. Um, Brian's quote about this in '67, I believe, says. I think that Let's Go Away for a While is the most satisfying piece of music I've ever made. I applied a certain set of dynamics through the arrangement and the mixing and got a full musical extension of what I'd planned during the earliest stages of the theme. 
I think the chord changes are very special. I use a lot of musicians on the track. 12 violins, piano, four saxes, oboe, vibes, and guitar with a Coke bottle on the strings for a semi-steel guitar effect. I also use two basses and percussion. The total effect is let's go away for a while, which is something everyone in the world must have said at one time or the other. Nice thought. Most of us don't go away, but it's still a nice thought. The track was supposed to be the backing for a vocal, but I decided to leave it alone. It was later issued as the B-side of Good Vibrations, which is interesting to me. Um, it's always interesting how they choose the B-sides for these, because this really didn't have a chance to be a single release or like, you know, to be a radio-friendly song, but um, really cool nonetheless on the, on the B-side of Good Vibrations. Yeah, I mean, it was obviously inspired by, by Burt Bacharach, uh, one of our favorites. I think uh, Brian loved the, the way he wrote chords and the progressions that he used. And just the vibe of it overall, no, no pun intended, but, you know, the vibraphone um, and uh, kind of the, the loose pulsating rhythm of the kick drum and the bass. Uh, it's, a, it's a rad track, man. Um, I would definitely give it a 9 out of 10 as well. Man, pumping up those nine out of tens. I mean, it's pet sounds, man. It's big boy time. I'll say that this track to me has always been the greater of the two main instrumentals on this record. And, uh, you know, nine out of 10, Boom! Uh, because it's, I mean, it's so diverse and it's got that exotica feel, which Wyatt knows how much I love that stuff. So, um, I'm big into that. 
and really big into that whole sound and that whole vibe. So, oh man, this is about as good as it gets if you're talking about kind of sort of Mancini, kind of sort of Exotica, kind of sort of Bacharach, everything put together. I don't know. It's kind of a, it's an edgier completion of that path. Yeah, I can dig it. Great song. So that leads me into talking about another topic. You know, I wanted to talk about the instrumentals today. And I think it's interesting that they used two instrumentals on this. I mean, they used a few instrumentals on albums before Pet Sounds, obviously, but they were more filler tracks. And I think in this album, they serve a very important purpose. Um, and they really do capture the, the mood and, and the, the overall feel of melancholy on the record. And yeah, they, they convey feelings. Yeah. Um, but my other uh, trivia question for you, Jason, right. is a really tough. It's a really tough one. So, okay. you know, no pressure here, but um, no peer can pressure. You, Let's do it. No peer pressure here, but can you name all the Beach Boys instrumentals released on official albums? Name them all? Yeah. Oh man, come on. this is hard. I'm not gonna be able to do this. <laughs> I can't even remember all of them. Can I'm you, not even gonna can try. You guess, can you guess how many you there just are? just wanted me to give you a number? I mean, you can do either. I'm not gonna name all of them. I'm gonna give you a number. I'm gonna say 15. You're close, there's 18. Okay, I knew I was and I'm close. And I'm not counting Smile and you know, no, no, I'm no. not no, I'm counting, counting the real anything. Re- the real I'm not counting I'm not counting Stacko tracks. Either. I'm counting the real. Um, ugh, pardon me. <clears throat> I'm counting the real records. Yep. So there's 18. Moondog on Surf and Safari. Then there's five on Surf and USA. Miserloo, Stoked, Honky Tonk, Surf Jam, and Let's Go Trippin'. Then on Surfer Girl, you've got the Rockin' Surfer and Boogie Woody, our favorite. Mm. And then on Shutdown Volume 2, you've got Shutdown Part 2. Yes. And Denny's Drums. Boom. On All Summer Long, you've got Carl's, Carl's Big, Big Chance. Chance. On Summer Days and Summer Nights, you've got one of our favorites. Summer Means New Love. Excellent. And then here we are on Pet Sounds. You've got Let's Go Away for a While and Pet Sounds. And then on Smiley Smile, Fall Breaks and Back to Winter. On Friends, you've got two. Passing By. Diamond Head and passing by yeah and passing by does have vocals you know but it's there's no lyrics um, nearest faraway place on 2020 and that's the last one they didn't do another one after that they did not huh well i can tell you that um i feel like and i think we said this a long time ago i said this on an earlier podcast that oh it's interesting you know he's got these instrumentals and they are all kind of goofy and filler at this point, but later on, which is right now, they take shape into an important part of the record. Yeah, of course. It's interesting, though, that these were also songs that he did while the Beach Boys were away on tour, and um, so these are all just Brian Wilson songs featuring the Wrecking Crew. And uh, next week, we're going to talk about um, the first songs that they ended up doing when they got back into the States, when the rest of the boys came back and Brian was working on some tracks and he was able to show the boys what he'd been working on. And he wrote some great songs with Tony Asher. So we're going to get that started next week with Caroline. No. So good. Thank you guys for listening. 
Check us out on the web, sailonsounds.com. Check out our Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and all those things that the kids do. And if you want to give us an email and tell us what your favorite Beach Boys instrumental is, it's sailonpodcast at gmail.com. You can leave us a voicemail or send me a text message at 615-606-3887. As always, our lovely bumper music made by Will C. That's W-I-L-L-C. WillCmusic.com. And we'll see you guys real soon out there. Hang on to your ego. Sail on, sailors. And then we'll get you no world peace. Thank you for coming. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks for coming. Here they are. Sail on the Beach Boy tribute. All right. (laughs) All right. Um,